Welcome to the Rob at Desk Podcast. I'm Rob Blasey. Today, we talk to Mark Hirschberg. He is an MIT professor. He teaches career skills, networking, negotiating, and so much more. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Mr. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today at the Rob at Desk podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Mark, I was reading up on you and you, I, we, we have some things in common. I don't know if you realize this. The big one is that, well, you teach at MIT and I'm kind of a teacher too. I coach, ju- I'm an assistant junior high basketball coach. So helping people as they grow. Right. So I, I feel like we're on the same level on that (laughs) we in many ways we are because the fundamentals are the same it's just the content is slightly different yeah so i'm just gonna say i'm like mark he teaches at mit i coach junior high basketball as an assistant so so yeah so i feel better about myself now about that today mark but (laughs) what what do you teach at mit the class that we created 20 years ago where i've been teaching ever since is referred to as mit's career success accelerator One challenge we found, and I say this as an MIT alum, is that our students, while they had the technical skills, didn't have some of the other key skills, leadership, communication, networking, negotiating, and surveys that we've done of corporate partners we work with, people hire our students, said these are the skills they want to see. By the way, not just in MIT students, not just in college students, but in everyone, everyone they hire everywhere, they want to see these skills, but they're not finding it. So we created this program to address that gap. So like leadership, like would these be more like soft skills as people would refer them to? Many people call them soft skills. We used to refer to them as firm skills as a combination, not not quite soft, because I think soft can be a little amorphous. Okay. Certainly not the hard skills. So we called them firm skills. Okay. And what, what would, it's interesting like that, is it because like at MIT, they're probably coming out with a very strong background with what their focus is. And then they just sort of, is it, they lose track over the time of what it takes to deal with us commoners. It's not an MIT specific <laughs> issue. Consider the following. Okay. When you think back to your education in high school, in college, did you ever hear networking was important? Have you heard that before? Yeah, but not actually from like what I would say, the teachers or the authorities, if you call it. I remember my, like my parents told me that, like, they're like, if anything you learn from college, like it's most people it's their network they build in college that propels them to their career exactly many of us have heard this now when in your education did someone sit you down and teach you how to network i don't think there's a specific time someone did there you go now leadership you've heard that's important oh when, yeah in high school or college did someone sit you down and say let's talk about how you can become a better leader I'm studying organizational leadership in college, some college classes right now. So there's some in there, but I think that's something that's more common to the last few years than there was back when I should have been going through taking college courses. So that's the thing. All of us, when you study accounting or marketing or chemistry, there's not a networking class. There's not a leadership class. There's not a negotiation class. People tell us these skills are important, but they're not actually included 
in any curriculum, not just at MIT, anywhere. Maybe if you're a business major, you might get some leadership or a few of these, but most of us get none of them. How, then, so then, how would so, how would someone like you then teach negotiating? Because that seems like a very subjective. Like, there's all there's all sorts of books on it now today, but like, if you're teaching a you know a 21 year old how to negotiate, like, well, like it's, to me, it sounds like a sales skills too. Negotiating is actually one of the I'll call it firmer of these skills because we have clearer models and approaches to doing it. As opposed to communication, there's lots of different ways you can communicate. You I mean lots of different things. It might depend on the circumstance, but negotiating, there are standard negotiating theories and the best way to learn negotiations really for any of this, but negotiations make it easy is through role-playing and activities. So there are negotiation case studies and we give the students, we put them in groups of two or three or six, depending on the size of it. And we give each one a role sheet. This is who you are and what we're about to do. These are your interests. This is what you want to achieve. Here are the other people. You don't know exactly what they want to achieve. You have some sense, but they're not showing you their cards. And now you're all going to come together and try to create an agreement. And literally in classes, you get evaluated on, okay, how did you do? Did you get the time you wanted, the price you wanted, the other metrics that you wanted? So that's an easy one to practice and measure in some quantitative way how you're doing. Because no, like there's like a... It's funny because like one of my old bosses, like every he goes, every time you hear someone give you a price, cr give them a cringe effect. Like even if you're going, I I'm willing to spend a thousand dollars on this, and someone goes, Hey, I can get it to you for eight fifty. You go, eight fifty. And all of a sudden they're like, Well, what about seven fifty? You're like, okay, yeah, seven it's because it's all about winning the negotiation. It's not about it's about seeing if you can get a few more dollars knocked off. Well, that's certainly true in some types of negotiations. Now, most people, when they think about negotiations, think about exactly that. We're haggling over price. Yep. This is what's known as a zero-sum game. So classically, when I'm buying your used car, yep. we're haggling at the rug at the bazaar because every extra dollar I give you is one less dollar for me. Yes. And so we always think, okay, well, I'm going to go low, you're going to go high, and we're just going to meet in the middle. But in fact, when you get into a lot of business negotiations, it's not a single issue negotiation. Correct. We're negotiating over price, sure, mm -hmm. delivery dates and timelines, maybe some quality standards. Maybe there's some other partnerships and marketing that we're agreeing to. So there's multiple dimensions. And while most people will first think, oh, that just makes it harder. In fact, that makes it easier because what we can do is start to trade off What's really important to you and not that important to me, I'm willing to concede in that area, but then I'm going to want you to concede in areas that are important to me, but less so for you. And both of us can create value. And one of the things that we teach in negotiation training, it is not simply about how you divide the pie, but how you expand the pie. Now in that zero sum, in that haggle over the car, there's no expansion. I can't Correct. magically make it two cars. But in these other more complex negotiations, I can find ways to expand the pie. Okay. How, like, how would you expand the pie? Well, we were going to put out a press release next month. What if we include your company in the press release? That didn't cost me anything else. We were already spending money on the press release. But now you just got some benefit. I expanded the pie. Okay. cost to me. No, that makes sense. Because I think one of the, I guess one of the broad examples in something like this is... Uh, um, compensation for a job negotiation. 
because there's everyone always thinks it's always just about the salary, but there's so many other, like you said, a multivariable equation or maybe PTO is really important to me. And I want that flexibility or I want, there's all these other things where the employer may, you know, they don't, you know, you might match on the salary, but you're going, I want four weeks off to start. And they're going, no, or things like that. Exactly. And I talk about in the book, I give a number of different buckets that you can negotiate on, but you can learn to trade things off. So for example, training, I was at a company, they were having a hard time going up to meet my salary expectations only because it's not, they said, Mark, you're not worth it. But I said, well, you're at this level and other people at this level. The problem is if we start giving you more, they're going to start to say they want more. Absolutely. So they kept my salary but gave me money for training. I wanted to do some executive training classes. That would have come out of my pocket. Instead, they're going to pay for it. So if someone's giving me $100 and $10 for classes, that's the same as if they gave me 110 and I paid 10 for the class. So I didn't care that it was a lower salary if I was getting that benefit in a different way. From their perspective, they said, oh, we're not spending more on salary, even though it was more dollars out of their pocket. But even those additional dollars, they saw as having a good return because it was making me more capable, which would help the company. Absolutely. So then are you hearing stories of like students coming back and going, hey, yeah, this really helped me in this situation X, Y, Z? A hundred percent. When I teach at MIT, we do a lot of workshops, some big groups, some small. I literally had a student, I was running a small group and he said, hey, I've got a summer internship with a startup. They're not paying me. They're, they're telling me this is all they can do for money. So they can't do any better on money. What can I do? I said, all right, well, we don't know if that's their cap on money, but they're telling you that. And you know, we can't call them liars. We can't know this isn't true. Mm-hmm. Can you push in other areas? So one area you can often negotiate on with a startup who typically they are cash strapped mm-hmm. is equity. They can usually be more flexible. And he came back to me, he had the call during the lunch break. He came back that afternoon and said, they doubled my equity. Yeah. So that, he got in real time, that improvement. That's, imp- that's impressive. That's great for him too. And great for you to see the, the results in the fruits of your work firsthand right there. That's one of the reasons I love teaching in person. I wrote the book because I can reach more people and I go on podcasts, I can reach more people. But in person, of course, I can get that feedback I can see how it changes how people think. I can see that impact and have that interaction. And then what about on the career path? Like one of the issues I've seen, I don't know if you've seen it more with with your at, but the issue of getting past the initial gatekeeper in today's world where someone posts a job, it's a good job, and yet they have hundreds if not thousands of applicants, and the computer's looking through it first before any person's actually looking through it. So how would you help people, especially on some of these jobs where there's a plethora of candidates and you're trying to find a way to at least talk to a human. That, as you point out, it's been a problem and it's become a worse problem with the automated systems, the ATSs, applicant tracking systems. Yeah. Often they might say, we are looking for someone with experience in this tool mm-hmm. and they might name a tool or two and you happen to use the third one in that category. That's 99% the same in any rational person. Say, oh, good enough. You get it. It's yeah. just the button's blue instead of red on this one, but you know how to use it. But you didn't match the keyword, and so they're not going to take you. So what we want to do, whether an ATS is used or not, 
what you want to do is get in touch with the hiring manager, get directly to the person who is making that decision. You still might have to submit your resume through HR, through the ATS, but you want to make sure that the head of that department who's hiring you sees your resume, has your name. And the way you do this, of course, is through your network. Absolutely. Now, I want to get back to the networking thing and how you teach people to do that. But I, the, on the uh, resume part with the ATS or the AI looking at things to sort of look for keywords. Now, this is a tip I heard, and I don't know how true it is. It sounds a little far-fetched to me, but you're in this world more than I am, is that on your resume in white print that matches the background, you can hide a ton of keywords in there that the computer will actually pick up on, but the human eye won't see it. So they're going, hey, you know, there's a lot more keywords that can be kind of like the old SEO when you scroll down to the bottom of a web page and there's a, a million words down there that look like garble, but it's just trying to optimize the website for search. But now you can kind of hide those words in your resume in white print that matches the background. That actually sounds pretty clever. I have not heard that one before. I Because I work in technology, and technology, there are lots of keywords. There's lots of buzzwords and acronyms. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, I know I need some of those on there. So I literally have a section on my resume called technologies. I don't list under each job, oh, I did this technology or that technology. I might list one or two key ones. But they just have a section that's just, it's like a paragraph. It's just lists of technologies I've used. Oh, it'd be and like so that. It and that's like, what it's there for. So it's I like, it's it like all the keywords in the past. So it's like Word, Excel, PowerPoint, you know, Salesforce, whatever. It would be things like that. For mine, it's usually software languages and databases, okay. but exactly. Yeah. Put, put that on, and you can just say, I think nowadays I call it tools. In my case, I think called operating systems, platforms, languages, but you can just say tools and just list comma separated tools. Okay, that looks reasonable on your resume. You're listing the tools you know, and it will get picked up by that keyword search. And you can just stick that off in a section, say right above your education at the bottom or below it. That's just a, a paragraph of keyword soup. Yeah, no, interesting. So then the networking part, like you talked about, like they really don't teach that. And there's, it seems like some people just have a natural knack for it. And then there's other people that it's like pulling teeth to network or they almost feel like it's almost inappropriate to network. They'd rather just feel like, Hey, I, I'll, I'll rest on my hard work and, you know, let that, you know, if they really want to find me, they'll find me. So here's why you and I are similar in how we teach. I am sure you get some people who are natural basketball players. Absolutely. And Others who just, they're not as coordinated, not as good, or maybe they're good in one thing, but not in the others. Now, what we know is, yes, there are natural networkers, natural basketball players, natural leaders, natural golfers, whatever. There are naturals mm -hmm. and non-naturals. But just like you can train someone to be a great basketball player, even if they're not a natural, if they put in the time, put in the hard work, understand it, drill, practice, scrimmage, they can get better than those naturals who just say, oh, yeah, I've, I've got it. I don't need to work out. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite things, I, I had to recruit some football players to play at our school once when I was coaching the high school team. And they're like, but coach, I don't know how to dribble the basketball. I'm like, I only need one guy on the court that knows how to do that. You don't have to do that. You just go keep jumping as high as you can out there. <laughs> <laughs> so we can learn to be better at networking, at leading, at negotiation, at any of these skills there are people who are naturals, but everyone else, including myself, 
we can work at, learn, and get even better than people who just say, well, this is my level, I'm good, and I'm not going to try and get better. And what are some of those uh, tools that you for helping them to network? Like, how do you get someone to, say, break the ice, for better or worse terms? One of the keys to think about when you're networking is, first, it's not about what you are taking. Too many people go with the mindset of, oh, I need a job. Hey, Rob, great to meet you. This is a really fun event. So listen, I need a job. Can you help me out? Like, whoa, slow down. <laughs> we, we just met here. Right. Don't walk up to a stranger and say, give me. But when you meet someone and build that relationship, I can ask someone who I've known for years, hey, listen, I'm looking for a job. Can you help me out? We can ask that when the relationship's in place. So we need to think when networking about building that relationship instead of just what can I get? The second thing you want to do is recognize everyone is interesting. We know people like to talk about themselves. So if I go up and I start talking about myself, I might have a good time. You're probably not. If, however, I think there's something really interesting about you, I don't know what it is, but I want to find out. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to learn more about you. You're going to have a great time in that conversation because you're talking about you and you're going to associate that with me. I think, oh, I had a great time talking with Mark and that's going to want to foster a relationship. And I might learn something along the way. No, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. I heard, what was a, I, I'm, I'm terrible at sourcing information, Mark. So I might be even be quoting you in this. So who knows? Um, is that like in those conversations, those networking conversations, and one of the worst things people do, if you, if you're like, Hey, you know, Hey Rob, how are you doing? Like, Hey, I'm just busy. Mm. And it goes, what's, it gives you nowhere to go. Like yes. with the conversation where I may be busy. I may be really busy. I may have a lot of things going on, but say something you just finished up and something you're excited about doing. And so then you go, Hey, I just finished, you know, basketball practice and I'm getting ready to, you know, study, you know, SQL language in the evening. Or, you know, that's exactly right. Think of it like movie previews. Before you watch the big movie, what do you do? You see a couple previews and previews mm -hmm. are just showing you a few scenes, a couple clips, a tiny piece of it. And then you say, oh, that one looked interesting. I'm going to follow up. I'm going to watch that movie. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me how I'm doing, I might give you two or three sentences. Keep it very brief. Hey, I just finished up this project and now I'm looking forward to doing this. Oh, and I have a trip coming up. Yeah, that's Leave it there. And then you can follow up. If any of those are interesting, what do you want to follow up with? Instead of my boring you about my trip planning and you're thinking, I don't care about this. Yeah, I don't care about the size of the luggage. She doesn't want to have to carry through the airport. Exactly. Sorry. So give people those previews and let them pick which movie they want to watch. Absolutely. And then one of the things you focus on, too, is like a career planning with your with uh, your students. Like how different is that, would you say, from like a business plan for yourself compared to like a business plan for an organization? Great question. They are really similar. What we tell people is when you are creating your business, you don't just say, well, hey, I think I'm going to start this business. I'm going to cross my fingers and hope it works out. What do you do? You have a plan. How are you going to make it work out? The mistake people make with their careers is they think, well, hey, I want to be a vice president in 10 years. I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope it works out. That is not a plan. You want to have the plan to get to there, to be there in 10 years. Where do you need to be in seven years, in three years, in one year? If, for example, you're going to be managing a team of 100 people, no one's going to say, well, I see you've never managed before, but let me put you in charge of 100. <laughs> 
they'll want to see, okay, you've led 50, 60 people. Before you can do that, they'll want to see maybe you've led 20 people. Before you can do that, have you led five people? So you know that there are checkpoints along the way. It might be a job title. It might be a responsibility or an accomplishment. So we want to backtrack out what are those steps along the way. Now, here's the thing. Just like our business plan, it's never going to work out exactly as we have it planned. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Eisenhower famously said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So it's the act of planning <laughs> that's going to help you understand it. And then as you go, adjust your plan because it will constantly change. Yeah, was it like Mike Tyson that said everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the nose? That's exactly right. So yeah, there's all sorts of versions <laughs> of it. They are all correct. Yeah. So then um, with your experience with like helping people with career planning, clearly you're de you know, dealing with people more like at MIT, but you've helped a lot of other people out as well. And the in the world that we're kind of changing into, like how much value do people go? You talked about like what projects people have done. How much more weight are organizations putting on? And, you know, hey, Mark, you've accomplished this great project, but you may not have the degree that we're looking for or even have a degree. What's the scale of that moving towards? Like, does everyone go, hey, we need the degree first before we give you a project or we look at the projects you have done? Like, where's that kind of land? It will vary a bit by industry. I very much hope the hospitals whose doctors I use first make sure they have the degree. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I don't want the guy to be like, I watched a lot of YouTube videos on this before. <laughs> yeah, TikTok. Okay, I see how to remove the appendix. Yep. So we, we know in certain fields, in science, medicine, law, accounting, regulated fields, in fields where there's a lot of, for example, uh, safety and process, Working at, for example, a nuclear facility, they usually want to see that experience. These are risk-adverse fields. But in many others, we're seeing a trend towards flexibility. Now, I can tell you for years, I didn't care if someone had a computer science degree. I've hired people with only high school degrees, in one case, a community college degree, and they've been fantastic. Because I only care if you have the knowledge and capability. The degree is a proxy. People don't look at me and say, oh, Mark, uh, three degrees from MIT. I wonder, can you do the math or will this be too hard? They go, okay, <laughs> yeah. we know you can do the math. Let's figure out, can you do the other things? So it can work as a proxy. And I think today, as we're seeing, we're recording this in the midst of the great resignation. Right. We're seeing as companies are struggling, they're starting to say, you know, maybe that degree really isn't important. Does it matter if you have a BS in art history to manage this local branch? Probably not. We, what we care about is, can you do, and we're going to talk to you about those skills. So I think degrees are becoming less important, and I'm actually a big fan of more vocational training to align to the particular role rather than a general degree. Oh, that makes sense. What would you tell someone who's like, has like an expertise, has like, has gotten a lot of qualifications, like say maybe even a pilot or something like that, but maybe never got the degree, but now it's trying to break into a field or even more of a, if you want to call it better words, terms like a white collar industry. But like he clearly knows how to do process and procedure as a pilot, but that you don't need a four-year degree to fly a plane. Right. Great example. Now there are things you can leverage if you've been that pilot, as you point out, you say, I am very process oriented. And just like I can convince people I'm very technical with those MIT degrees, I can do oh, yeah. that to be a pilot. They don't take people who are, uh, you know, details. I'm a more <laughs> picture person. No, 
they know you are very detailed. You're used to checklists. You can do it. Oh, yeah. People have trusted you with their lives. You are a responsible person. So you can leverage all of that. Now, does that mean you can necessarily manage a chemical plant? Well, you might not have the domain knowledge. And we have to recognize there are traits like being process oriented. There's also domain knowledge or experience and different jobs will weight those differently. What you can do, let's say you're this pilot and you do want to get to managing a chemical plant. Okay, that is a big leap. Yes. That's not a jump you can do at once. What do we do when we're trying to cross a river? Or we can't do a single jump. Well, we hopscotch across different nearer rocks instead of doing one leap. So can you find a job that isn't as a pilot, that's just something process oriented, but that's now more business? Because as a pilot, you're really not responsible for, say, a P&L. You're yeah. not really running a budget as a pilot. So let's find you a job where you are running a budget, where you're doing something more managerial. Then we find you another job that leverages your managerial skills and maybe is somewhat in the chemical industry. And now you've got the chemical industry experience, you've got the management experience, the process experience. And so now some six, eight years later, you're ready to run that chemical plant. So that's where you take that long-term goal and you backtrack out what are the things you need to accomplish along the way to get there? No, absolutely. And then you mentioned like the great resignation going on. What are the key reasons you're seeing why people are stepping away from their jobs? We're seeing the biggest rewrite of the labor and uh, labor and employer agreement in a century. And I think the reason is people are basically saying, I'm madder than hell and not going to take this <laughs> anymore. It used to be, well, come work for me and I'm going to pay you this much money. Some of that was salary, but also some other types of compensation could mm -hmm. be vacation days or bonus. But people are saying, you know, there's more that I want out of it. I care about workplace culture, work-life balance. Younger generations especially are saying alignment to mission or community impact or other things I care about. And so we can't just say as employers, well, here's that basket of money. Again, money is kind of a broad term. Yeah. Say, here's the money, but here's also how it aligns to your values, how we support your work-life balance. We saw a lot of people when there was stress, beginning, of course, in spring of 2020, some companies said, hey, look, it's tough for all of us, and we all just have to suck it up because we got to make sure our company's around. And others said, you know what? This is stressful. We understand. So you know what? In May, we're going to just do everyone gets Fridays off. We get just take a day off, spend time with your families, get off of Zoom. We know you need that break or everyone's taking a week off on this week. I've seen companies do that. And those were the companies that won out. I'm not saying you have to move to a four day work week. There's debate over that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that will happen. But the companies who say it's stressful and we support you. At that case, it was a macro level, but even an individual level, when they show they care about people and they create a culture that's not just work for me for some money, those are the companies that seem to be winning out the talent wars. How would you help a company out that, like if you watch LinkedIn long enough or Facebook and you see like these business leaders, I always joke it's like the pronoun leadership where it's like, it sounds great. It's a great quote to put out there, you know, like make your work, you know, show that you care about your employees. I thought that was a good one. You get example, like, Hey, occasionally give them a three day weekend, you know, does, you know what it is for each industry and each company that can be, that's a variable that the company has to deal with. But in, I don't hear much in like 
in these air quote business leaders, you know, speakers, they don't give many details of going, Hey, try this. If that doesn't work, try that. If this, you know, it's like, they're just like, Hey, show them that you care. Well, like as a basketball coach, there's certain kids. I know I show them I care because I'm on them and saying, Hey, this is what you should be doing. And there's other kids like, Hey, how's your day going? Yep. And so it's like, it, so that when they, when you, when they, I don't know, lead by pronouns is kind of how I kind of joke is what it is. I, I love that that quote, leading by pronouns, because you're right. We see too much hand-wavy, do this big picture idea. Go, okay, but how? And you're absolutely right. It really is where the rubber meets the road. When you are a candidate, this is an important question to ask. Say, tell me about your culture or tell me about how you take care of employees and give me examples be specific. Give me a, you, you say you really value employee feedback. Okay, great. Give me an example in the last six months where employees gave you a suggestion and you implemented it. Put them on the spot. Have them prove it to you because we should hold the companies to the same standards. They're going to do it to us. Oh, I, I know this tool and technology. They're going to say, okay, prove it. Tell me about a time you used it. Tell me about a project you did. And that's a fair question. It is. But so is the turnabout. You tell me you care about employees. Show me how you care about employees. Boy, that would be an interesting interview process. I'll give you an example of something I do. I've had times I do software projects. I'm a CTO, a chief technology officer. Mm -hmm. And there are times where you just have some late night. You have some, hey, we got to hit this deadline. We're all going to work hard. So everyone works hard. And then I recognize they're putting in those extra hours. So I will compensate them either with spot bonuses Here's just some extra money in addition to any end of year bonus you might be eligible for. Mm -hmm. It might be, hey, everyone, we are going to take this Friday off or take that three-day weekend. We know you're doing long hours. I also, I'm a big fan of gift baskets. I okay. love gift baskets. And so I will send gift baskets. Now, here is an example, just as, again, how we're similar. You noted with different students of yours, you engage with them different ways. I remember when I was sending out gift baskets, it was important to know one of the guys, I'm sending often wine and cheese baskets. I knew one of the guys, he didn't drink and he was vegan. Well, I am not sending him a wine and cheese basket. In fact, that is hurtful. There's a book called Punished by Rewards when you're sending the wrong <laughs> incentives, right? I'd be saying yeah. to him, thanks for all your hard work. I know nothing about you. Here's something you don't want. I just That's gave you something you can re-gift. Yeah. In, in fact, he, he, uh, when he saw me on Monday, he said, thank you so much. You have no idea how great this was. Cause we had another guest with us. In fact, I think he was only vegetarian and his guest was vegan, but I sent the vegan gift basket just to be safe. He said, it was wonderful. We had all these great vegan snacks when she was visiting us with someone else. I knew he was married. So the gift basket I sent wasn't just to him. It was to him and his wife thanking him for his time, thanking his wife for letting him spend some extra time with us away from her because she paid some price as well. And it's those little things, that recognition that really does matter to employees. No, absolutely. That's a great idea with those gift baskets. And then knowing it's like, and it shows them, like you said, you know, your team, you've in the small talk in life, you've listened to them when they go, Hey, yeah, this is, you know, I'm vegan or I focus on this and that. No, that's a, absolutely. No, that's that's awesome. So then I want to go back to another topic I keep that we talked about negotiating with and then the negotiating salaries. 
like we mentioned it with the intern and how he did that. But do you find that there's like a lot of times I find people are, I'll put out there just agreeable when they go, they want the job more than they realize. Like they might've left thousands of dollars on the table because they were just agreeable. They didn't want to fight. They didn't want to start their new job by pushing back a little bit. Very true. They either just said, okay, close enough, or they're agreeable. They don't want to rock the boat or they're a little not comfortable negotiating. So let me give you some motivation for why you should learn to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you are 30 years old and you have a job offer for, let's say, $60,000. Okay. Instead of simply taking the job as it is, and you feel 60, that's a pretty good salary for this job and your experience. But instead of taking the job as it is, you go and negotiate. You've read my book or a different book or taken an online class, however you've done it. That's going to take you, my chapter will take you an hour to read. Okay. Another book, maybe a couple hours. So you negotiate. That's going to take you five or 10 minutes. You negotiate and you get yourself $61,000. Now, it seems like a small amount. Certainly, we usually think about getting five, ten thousand 10000 more, but you just get $1,000 more. We imagine that's quite doable. Mm-hmm. If you do nothing else in your career, if you sit in this job for the next 30 years, in those five minutes of negotiations, you've gotten yourself $1,000 more for 30 years. You just got yourself $30,000. But of course, you're not going to be in that job for 30 years. You're going to have raises and promotions and other jobs. And you're probably going to negotiate those two and get more than $1,000. If you learn to negotiate, you can add tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earnings. And we're just talking about salary and compensation. When you're buying or selling a house, a car, when you negotiate with coworkers, there's no money on the table, but creating better outcomes, the returns of learning to negotiate are massive and it only takes a couple hours just to get started. No, absolutely. I think that's one thing in life. I mean, I just said, you, you know, you ask those few friends, like they feel like it's almost dirty to negotiate. And it's one thing if you're trying to just like, you walk into the burger place, like, oh, I only pay $4 for this burger instead of five. That's, you know, the price is the price at certain places. But I mean, even then, almost everything's negotiable. If you walk into the burger place, even if it's one of these big chains and you yeah. say, listen, I need to order 200 burgers. What kind of volume discount can you give me? Now, the cashier might not be able to do it. <laughs> the manager's going to say, yeah, 200 burgers? Okay, we can oh, yeah. we can work something out. So even when the price is fixed, still can be I, negotiable. Can I, can I use those 200 burgers over about two, three years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might, be, that might be a little challenging. You guys will be my premium lunch to see, destination if you guys can give me a discount. They're like, use the rewards plan. <laughs> So, Mark, it has been great talking to you. You have your book, The Career Toolkit, and we've talked a lot about how, you know, some of the tools people can get out of it. What is there anything we missed that you want to highlight that they could, if they picked it up, what they could find out of it? Not only is there the book, but there is also the free app that's available on the Android Google Play Store and the iPhone Store, and it's linked from my website. And the free app contains a lot of the great tips in the book. And what it does is it pops up every day one of the reminders. Because when you read a book like mine or any other, you say, okay, great advice. There's a lot of good, actionable advice in my book, but you forget it very quickly. And I want to make sure you remember it and use it. So when you download the app, 
as you're reading the book, you'll get those tips each and every day. So it stays top of mind. You don't even need to open the app. Just open it once every 30 days so we know you're active and we're not annoying you. But just <laughs> okay. pop up that little notification. You look at it, go, oh, right, good tip. Swipe it away. Or let's say you're about to go into negotiation. Instead of rereading the chapter, you open up the app, you go to all those negotiation tips, you flip through them and get that crash course refresher. So that's available as well. And there's a whole bunch of other great resources on the resources page, free downloads, links to other tools online. So all of this you can get on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Excellent. I'll put a link in the description for you. And then I got to ask another question is with all your math at MIT, have you ever coached sports and, and implemented the math into it? I have coached sports. I was a competitive ballroom dancer. Okay. And times coached the MIT, the BU, and the Northeastern ballroom dance teams. Oh, wow. Like, so like how, com like I've never met someone that was a competitive ballroom dancer. I went to national championships for, I think, six or seven years in a row. Like, and that's going to be tough because it's more, su it's subjective versus like, hey, I scored two points. You scored, you know, three points. You won. Like, how does well, that, how's that graded? It, it's, it's called the skating system, although it's different than how figure skating is dating is uh, done now. During the early rounds, you have multiple couples on the floor and each judge will put down marks. They just mark if there's, let's say, 50 couples on the floor, each judge is supposed to put down 25 marks, call back about half the people. And what they do, you might have five judges and then they'll just tally up all the marks, how many marks you got from each judge. So some have five, four, three, two, one. And they'll find the break point, whether it's three marks or two marks, that's the cutoff. And some number of people, might not be exactly 25, get called back to the next round. So they do this round after round, cutting in half each time, until you get to roughly the final six people. And then the judges mark each of them one to six. I can tell you at the top ballroom competitions in the world, so at Blackpool, and that is number one, that is the big competition, when they do it, the judges, instead of writing it down on sheets and then having, there's a person called the comptroller who adds it up, mm -hmm. they just hold up, they do a little flip card and they hold up the ranking. And you will see a row of 15 judges. And when they hold something up, the number three person gets a 12, 13 threes and maybe a four and maybe a two. But there is such amazing consistency. So even though it's subjective, there are some very clear guidelines that's usually very consistent. It's interesting. Like, cause my wife and I were just, we were watching uh, the Australian open and just with who's better. Like there's usually a clear definition of who's the best at something or at least the top tier groups. And like Nadal was, it was the semifinals. I forget the guy he was playing. I think it was an Italian guy. I forget, but like he was basically playing with them for, it took him four sets. He had one bad set. And then he, you know, he beat him. But like, here's this guy who's a top ten player who's struggling to play with a top three place player in the world. And there's just a clear defining line. Like he's clearly better. Yeah, you can you can often see that. Maybe occasionally you get some couples. I, I heard about cases like this where you have couples who are just really close, neck and neck. So that can happen. But over the larger field. It's not like, oh, there's 20 couples and someone thinks this couple and that couple and there's 20 opinions. Yeah. No, it's very consistent.
That's amazing. It shows you what an expert eye on something can, you know, it's interesting in that. So I've never, outside of seeing in a few plots of movies, ballroom dancing's not been something I've seen much before, but that's, that's great. So, so all right, Mark, yeah. before I let you go, is there anything else we want, you want to touch? I think we got through everything. We talked about the book, the app, the website, the career toolkit book.com. And we'll simply say these skills, much like basketball, these are not one and done. You don't say, hey, I went to a basketball clinic for an afternoon, done with basketball. I know everything I need to know. You have to keep practicing, keep training. Oh, yeah. When it comes to these, whether you read my book, take a class, read another book, great. Now keep practicing, keep training, read another book, take another class. It is about continually learning and improving. And like basketball, it's best done by doing. Absolutely. No, couldn't say it better. Mark, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show.